Welcome to Perfectly Imperfect, a podcast that explores mental health, especially for folks of color. I'm your host, Johnzel Anderson. I'm a licensed therapist and owner of Panoramic Counseling in Richmond, Virginia. I hope you enjoyed today's discussion. We are back for the fourth and final episode of our March book club on Bessel van der Kolk's The Body Keeps the Score. We are going to be covering chapters 18 through the end of the book. So if you're following along, make sure that you finish the book before listening to this episode. But kind of on the same idea of last week's episode, I I believe like the second half of this book is kind of shifted more in the hopeful direction because the first couple of episodes were kind of getting into the science behind trauma and uh, kind of all the things that could go wrong and how the impacts are on certain communities and things like that. Chapter 18 starts with, or it's titled, Filling in the Holes, Creating Structures. Um, In this section, there was a lot of interesting, like, kind of intervention ideas. I have my own opinions about them as a practicing therapist. But as always, I want to jump in with the group members here's initial thoughts on what we read. I think for me, it was interesting to see that you could rewire the brain mapping. So if you started out childhood as having, like, not developed security within your parents and your attachment style, that you could go through some types of therapy to possibly fix that within the way you viewed that situation, which was really interesting. I would have never thought that that was being done unless I had read it in this book. Yeah, I agree. Um, and that therapy is like such a powerful tool. Um, especially if you get a therapist that you have rapport with and you're really honest with yourself about the things that you want to work on in therapy and the reasons why you're there and you will, you know, show up and do your work with them really. Life yeah, the thing that I didn't know much about, um, I get people that ask, uh, clients every so often will ask me about the neurofeedback intervention, which I've heard about it. And people, it doesn't matter where my therapy office is, because I've been in different offices since starting my business. But the neurofeedback, like reps or whatever, the people who like provide the services, they find me and they'll slide pamphlets and like, you know, all sorts of stuff under the door or in the mail, you know, and I've like looked at it and I'm like, oh, that's cool. But I've never like really taken the time to like get to know what it is. But from reading about it in this book, it seems pretty interesting, like especially for like kind of like a cynical, like, like left brain type of person like me to like be able to like be connected to electrodes and to see how my brain activity is changing with the different exercises. I feel like that could be pretty cool. I do want to do further research. Like, I kind of like think that this book is like a sampling of things that I want to do further research on. So I did find the the neurofeedback part uh, kind of interesting. Full disclosure, as I mentioned, I'm a therapist, but I'm going to comment on some of these therapeutic approaches. I, it, For listeners of this podcast, it doesn't mean I know how to do these particular interventions. As we talked about in last week's episode, not every therapist knows how to do every therapeutic intervention. You can't be everything to everybody. So uh, some of the things that I'm going to comment on are really just, I read about them in this book and just want to share kind of my own observations and thoughts about them. 
but the first one that came up was the uh, Tableau exercise. It's kind of like role play where, uh, and I think Nita was talking about this too, where basically you're kind of re you're going back to like a trauma or a situation or a family dynamic. You know, there's like a cast of like actors who can play different roles like a, a absentee father or, you know, an abusive aunt or something like that. And then you can also cast characters to play the version of that person that you needed in that time as part of processing it in therapy. It's kind of hard to concisely summarize that for the sake of the podcast, but I thought that was pretty interesting. Uh, It reminds me of, I think a lot of people have heard of like play therapy for children. And so, you know, children who go to play therapy, oftentimes the therapist will have like a big sand tray in a room and there's like shelves of like these different toys and uh, props and things like that. And you can like, you know, set up scenes and like kind of process things through like storytelling and through play. And it felt like when they were describing this like tableau thing, it kind of felt like that, but for adults, obviously adults can do play therapy as well with the sand tray as well. Um, And I've seen some people do that. But I thought that was pretty cool that uh, there are some places that do that. Of course, as a, you know, solo practitioner, I'm thinking like, that's expensive. It's got to be to have these different actors, you know, on hand to be able to take these different scripts and to help a person work through something during their session. But nonetheless, it was pretty cool. Like, uh, obviously, you know, for those who have the means, like, to be able to do a therapeutic intervention that can have a breakthrough like that is pretty cool. Uh, One quote that came from that section that I want to share is, quote, nobody grows up under ideal circumstances as if we even know what ideal circumstances are, end quote. I think sometimes, you know, especially both as a therapist, you know, talking with people also as a client myself, But even like before we started this recording, we were talking about how things are supposed to go a certain way or we think, you know, whether it be like medication or planning your vacation or how things are going to go on your job. We would like to think that things could be normal. But the reality is, as we've discussed many times before, uh, life is messy and it's, it's very difficult. So. Did y'all have one of the one of those interventions that you read about that was interesting to you? Or did you want to comment on the Tableau one? So there's a young man that the author is talking about. I believe his name is Mark. And apparently Mark overheard his dad having phone sex with his aunt over the phone. So then the dad, when confronted by the son, instead of saying, yes, I did, my fault. He blamed it on the son for ruining the family and said it's his own nasty thoughts that's caused him to think that's what was going on, Um, which is crazy. So the fact that you are out here doing stuff you shouldn't be doing and you're blaming it on your kid. So this caused this young man to grow up and not trust anybody, especially women. He felt like women just wanted stuff out of him. Um, So then when they are having this session, apparently you pick the people that you want to play significant roles in your life. So you pick somebody to play his dad, pick somebody to play his mom, and pick somebody to play his aunt. And it's just very telling of where they have these people centered in physical location to themselves. Like his dad, I think they said, might have been 12 feet away. His mom was in the corner hiding like or something like that. And the aunt was just kind of standing, looking at him or whatever. 
So then it's like giving this young man a chance to say these things to these people that he wished he could have said when he was a kid, but didn't probably have the courage to. So after seeing what happened and him actually being able to finally get a girlfriend after he's gone through this process when he completely did not trust women up to that point was kind of like, hmm, I wonder how many other people have gone through something like this and this really helped them. So for him to be able to do that type of work in real time, that was actually a really good example. And they gave they gave a couple of those throughout this. So that seems very interesting. Like to me, having uh, done some training in play therapy before I determined that I don't really like working with little kids, I I can see that as a version of like uh, that type of therapy for adults, except it's using, you know, obviously using real people. Um, but even, you know, I'm sure therapists could probably implement elements of that and on a smaller scale, like I've had, uh, there's an exercise called the empty chair technique, where basically you set a chair in the room and have the client like have a conversation with that person, not the person actually being there, but like it's an empty chair and it's, you know, the home wrecking aunt, you know, in the chair and you're telling her, you know, how you feel like uh, it. So there's different ways to kind of do that. But I like how they Obviously, they had a whole center and stuff like that where they could like make these things happen. Yes, I, I found that really cool uh, how they they were able to do that. And sometimes for like, you know, being a therapist or just like knowing what kind of services are, sometimes the most we'll know about these things is like hearing about it in a book because I don't even like, first of all, I, I highly doubt you could use your insurance to go to a place like that and do that kind of therapy, like with a simple copay, like. I'm sure that type of therapy you're dropping like stacks, like it's not cheap. I mean, you got to pay all those actors, you know, they all got to be there. They all got to be insured. Like if you think about all that, it's probably very, very expensive, but still cool. Still good to know that there are different ways, especially since this book is written by a psychiatrist and he says it throughout the book. Like he's almost like, you know, he speaks the truth about his own profession and that medicine doesn't solve everything. I mean, we were kind of talking about that before we started recording. It's like, well, yeah, we can like be talking with our psychiatrist, but we also need to take vacations. We also need to be being treated fairly and have like safe and supportive work environments and stuff like that. So moving on, I did highlight on page 316, uh, a little chunk about neurofeedback, because it's so scientific. And again, uh, when I don't know enough about something, I like to be concise. So I want to read this paragraph verbatim. And I'm going to kind of leave it at that, because it definitely warrants uh, further research from me. So quote, how could neurofeedback be used to help treat trauma? As Seaburn explained, with neurofeedback, we hope to intervene in the circuitry that promotes and sustains states of fear and traits of fearfulness, shame, and rage. It is the repetitive firing of these circuits that defines trauma. Patients need help to change the habitual brain patterns created by trauma in its aftermath. When the fear patterns relax, the brain becomes less susceptible to automatic stress reactions and better able to focus on ordinary events. After all, stress is not an inherently an, an inherent property of events themselves. It is a function of how we label and react to them. Neurofeedback simply stabilizes the brain and increases resiliency, allowing us to develop more choices in how to respond, end quote. And so one connection I made with the chapter 
uh, or the, the, the sections, I think this is almost a whole chapter on neurofeedback, or it was a big chunk, but they had a chapter on EMDR as well. And I feel like the neurofeedback and EMDR kind of work similar, but they're very different as well. So I think the, the treatment approaches where it's like, well, we're not making the trauma go away, but we're able to kind of soften the sharp edges of it and help a person make sense of it so that the distress is reduced. That sort of stuff makes sense to me. And it's hopeful, I think, in a a book like this about trauma, where we're hearing all these case studies of all these bad things that have happened to people um, and seeing, you know, also getting to hear like case studies of like things that actually help people. So um, did either of y'all have any thoughts on neurofeedback? I did. Um, I had highlighted on page 314, um, like when the author went over, when he first met Seaburn um, at like a conference and she had told him that he, that she was using like neurofeedback in her practice for like a decade or something like that. And then she had showed him before and after drawings that like a 10 year old patient um, had done um, like I think on the other page it was drawings that he did after a couple of sections that you could see like the progress because it was just like stick figures and then in the beginning and in the middle like kind of stick figure looking people but they have more details like he drew clothes on them and then after that like he started to really like you could see the improvement, like he put facial expressions on them and like they were happy. And like, um, I think also like the kids had learning disabilities, and difficulties in school and after like sessions, I think about 20 or 30 sessions in their feedback, his tantrums had decreased and then you can see the actual improvement in the drawing. So I thought that was really cool. Definitely something that I don't know. I I definitely want to research it more and learn more about it. But in this particular economy, um, as a person living with a mental health condition, uh, it always comes down to, can I afford this? Which sucks. I wish that, and again, that's probably bigger than the scope of this like book club or this, even what they cover in this book as far as like systems and stuff that are in place. But if we had some sort of like, I don't know, working healthcare system that actually cared about providing the best quality care to everybody, this sort of stuff would probably be more mainstream and people, you know, they say when people get treatment for, you know, first of all, if you end injustice, such as like poverty and uh, access to resources and stuff, you tend to have less trauma. And then with less trauma comes less cost to society as a whole. But we tend to be a more reactive society. So we try to fix problems after they've already been caused, you know, but maybe if we could figure out the healthcare system and being able to afford this sort of stuff, people would be able to get the help that they need. And of course, not be so rageful, angry, reactive, anxious, overwhelmed, you know, all of those things. But yeah, that was really cool to actually see the drawings too, like the differences between the different sessions. It's always good to have kind of like, a marker to to see if something's really working or if it's like placebo or whatever. But uh, in some of those examples, it seems like behaviors like completely disappeared. And I know that I've seen examples like that with EMDR, where you process something and literally the issue is it's not an issue for somebody anymore. It's not that they like forget the memory, but it's just like they're able to 
put it somewhere where it's not hurting them as much anymore and the stimulus is reduced and they can go on living their life. So that's pretty cool. But moving on to chapter 20, I thought it was pretty interesting, the section where they were talking about how like theater, because it's kind of on the same line of uh, what I was talking about with the tableaus, like using actors to kind of play some things out. But this is a little bit more specific where they're using like theater as a form of treatment. I was a, a theater kid in high school. So I thought this is pretty cool. because It's like, oh, not, you know, you can uh, be in the role of somebody else and like be working out your own particular problems through that. And I've read many a celebrity memoir of like actors and stuff like that, where they're like doing their own healing and like, it's like art imitating life and stuff like that. Um, so I've kind of seen this in that sense, but I want to share a couple excerpts from that section. So quote, in order to find our voice, uh, we have to be in our bodies, able to breathe fully and able to access our inner sensations. This is the opposite of dissociation of being out of bodies and making yourself disappear. It's also the opposite of depression, lying slumped in front of a screen that provides passive entertainment. Acting is an experience of using your body to take your place in life. And then it goes on to say all of these programs, and it was referencing like some of the different um, theater therapy type programs that they were looking at. Uh, all of these programs share a common foundation confrontation of the painful realities of life and symbolic transformation through communal action. Love and hate, aggression and surrender, loyalty and betrayal are the stuff of theater and the stuff of trauma. As a culture, we are trained to cut ourselves off from the truth of what we're feeling. In the words of Tina Packer, the charismatic founder of Shakespeare and Company, training actors involves training people to go against that tendency not only to feel deeply, but to convey that feeling at every moment to the audience so the audience will get it and not close off against it, end quote. So I thought that was pretty cool. They were able to use like all these different types of things that you wouldn't traditionally think of like trauma treatment. It was like, you know, they're go like going in the community, they're working with populations of people who may never go see a therapist, but they're seeing like outcomes and they're able to like track it and stuff. So thought that was pretty cool. I can't help but make a comparison to uh, the Prince Harry book. Maybe this is why his dad always wanted to go to the theater. Maybe this was his way of dealing with the fact that he couldn't hug his mom, couldn't hug his dad. He couldn't be like affectionate with the people he really cared about. So maybe therapy was his way of like, I want to say almost transcending from his life and not being able to be close to anybody to feeling like, oh, what if I was this character? So I could be somebody else and not have to deal with this. It's just a random thought. That's good. I think with the um, theater um, part, like the thing that jumped out to me was the section in chapter 20 of the Um around like making it safe to engage in the author. Talk about like the theater program not being for like aspiring actors, but for those who are like, angry or frightened teenagers or alcoholics or like burnout veterans and then they talked about um how they first come to rehearsal and like they're angry they're like slumped out you know, think think that people are going to like kind of see through them and see their failures and then they talked about going like slow and engaging them like bit by bit um so that you know they would like come around and 
be participants. You can't really. And that, I think that's pretty universal for any sort of therapy, whether it be physical or um, like emotional. Like I think of like my daughter going to say the dentist or the doctor or something like it's going to be a mess if she doesn't trust the person who's like, say, putting their hands in her mouth, right? Like you have to create a sense of safety and everything like that before you can do that. And I think of, you know, obviously I'm talking about a child, but like as adults too, like I was sharing a, I'll I'll give the synopsis. Had a plumber come to my house today to fix a, a leak with the toilet. And I was in the middle of a therapy session. I was doing an online session and so I had to like step away from the session to like, you know, deal with this man. Uh, meanwhile, um, of course, my computer is just open and my client can hear this like interaction that I'm having with uh, the plumber. And uh, the plumber had fixed the issue or whatever. And he had this big ass knife. Like um, it was, he called it a plumber's knife or something, but it looked like a tiny, like a small sword. And I was like, that's a big app. And so as I get back to my computer after this interaction, my client was like, <laughs> he had a big knife. And I, I was like, it looked, it was a big, and I literally, he's like, I heard you telling the, the plumber that he had a big ass knife. And I was like, that's a big ass knife. And like the, the plumber like said to me, he's like, oh, it's a plumber's knife. And he's like, you jump back. Like I was going to do something. And I'm like, I don't know you. And he's like, okay. And I was like, once again, that's a big ass knife you should probably put it away. So it, it it's a it's a small like example but it's like wait, I'm in my home and I'm communicating to you that like you don't need to be holding that while you're talking to me like put it back in the little sheath or whatever, but like I can I'm not hearing anything the plumber is saying because I'm like you have something that I perceive as being dangerous to me. And so like being able to quote, disarm kind of, you know, your environment is very important. I think I made the connection there. But basically, these kids who were coming in, they're like, they had to like establish trust and rapport before they could really get into anything. And then once they were, they were able to kind of do the work. The takeaway there is that if you don't have safety, if you're not in a safe place, whether it be with therapists, whether it be with your you know, doctor, your psychiatrist or anything like that, you're not actually going to get any healing because you're going to block your acceptance and engagement with that intervention because the person or the, the environment around it didn't provide safety. So we have to provide safety for people in order for them to actually like get what they need out of something. So that was a good connection. So I kind of like the epilogue. Usually I don't read epilogues to books. It, it really depends on who's, whose epilogue it is. And like, if I think it's worth my time, definitely didn't read all the references and the, because a big chunk of the back of the book was just all of the references and whatnot. And which is good. I like when someone can back up everything they said with sources, because uh, this world is is lacking and people being able to back up what they say lately. But the um, the epilogue starts off with, and I'll, I'll share the quote, we are on the verge of becoming a trauma conscious society. Almost every day, one of my colleagues publishes another report on how trauma disrupts the workings of the mind, brain and body. The ACE study uh, showed how early abuse devastates health and social functioning, while James Heckman won a Nobel Prize for demonstrating the vast savings produced by early intervention in the lives of children from poor and troubled families. More high school graduations, less criminality, increased employment, and de- decreased family and community violence, um, end quote. So I like 
that the epilogue started with that and it's kind of like hey this is why all of this stuff is important it's like obviously trauma is bad bad things happen and people get traumatized by them but it's like if we take this seriously and we're aware that trauma is a big problem we can get the help that we need and hopefully have better qualities of life i think that's what we all want is to live you know a good quality of life but and i think this is particularly like of course i highlight i read this and highlighted it before the events that happened today and i truly don't even know most of what has occurred i there's another school shooting today at the time that we uh, uh are recording this episode and i don't want to give specifics because i don't know much about it beyond a reel that i saw on instagram but i'm going to share this and i think it will resonate but it'll also kind of talk about how we know all of this stuff that we've gotten uh in this book like about trauma and things like that but there's still work to be done so i even i wrote in the margin i said even with all that we know um dot 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 and so quote and yet after attending Another wake for a teenager who was killed in a drive-by shooting in the Blue Hill Avenue section of Boston, or after reading about the latest school budget cuts in impoverished cities and towns, I find myself close to despair. Now, mind you, this is the author of the book saying that he's feeling pretty hopeless. And that was the connection point for me, because I think any person in this world probably has a sense of cynicism and hopelessness because it's bleak out here in these streets. But anyway, back to the quote. In many ways, we seem to be regressing with measures like the callous congressional elimination of food stamps for kids whose parents are unemployed or in jail, with the stubborn opposition to universal health care in some quarters, with psychiatry's obtuse refusal to make connection between the psychic suffering and social conditions, with the refusal to prohibit the sale or possession of weapons, whose only purpose is to kill large numbers of human beings, and with our tolerance for incarcerating a huge segment of our population, wasting their lives as well as our resources. And then the author goes on to say, I wish I could separate trauma from politics, but as long as we continue to live in denial and treat only trauma while ignoring its origins, we are bound to fail. In today's world, your zip code, even more than your genetic code, determines whether you will lead a safe and healthy life. People's income, family structure, housing, employment, and educational opportunities affect not only their risk of developing traumatic stress, but also their access to effective help to address it. Poverty, unemployment, inferior schools, social isolation, widespread availability of guns, and substandard housing are all breeding grounds for trauma. Trauma breeds further trauma. Hurt people hurt other people, end quote. And I'm going to add one more thing, because he kind of goes off the rails in this epilogue, and I'm like, I thought you were wrapping it up, but then he like threw in some new stuff. So I was like, schools. So here's my last little quote, and then I'll, I'll end my sharing of quotes there. Quote, It is standard practice in many schools to punish children for tantrums, spacing out or aggressive outbursts, all of which are often symptoms of traumatic stress. When that happens, the school, instead of offering a safe haven, becomes yet another traumatic trigger. Angry confrontations and punishment can at best temporarily halt unacceptable behaviors. But since underlying alarm system and stress hormones are not laid to rest, they are certain to erupt again at the next pro- 
provocation, end quote. I thought it was interesting that that was like thrown in at the very tail end of the book, as in in the epilogue. I'm sure he kind of alluded to it earlier in the book, but that's particularly interesting to me uh, as a person of color. Also, today's book club happens to be all people of color. That is the foundation right there for the school to prison pipeline. So the the kids who have the outbursts and the behavior issues and stuff like that, they're treated as behavioral deviants instead of people who are traumatized who need help. And they get suspended, they get put out of school, they get put into alternative schools with other troubled kids who are not receiving the help that they need. They end up either dropping out or uh, being delinquent to the point where they end up in juvenile detention and then in the prison systems. And then they have the learned helplessness of needing to be in and out of the prison system, which if you think about it, the United States uh, system of incarceration is just slavery repackaged because it's mostly black and brown people up in them bitches. So just wanted to to end on uh, that note that racism and slavery is still quite relevant in today's day and age. Um, so I said a lot there. I shared a lot of quotes, but I want to pass it back to y'all to share your thoughts, um, either at the end of this book or the epilogue or some takeaways that you have from this particular book and book club series. So I think for this particular book club series, I feel like um, the book, like I enjoyed reading it um, and like just learning more about like the history and like the science behind trauma and what causes it and everything that goes into developing it and what it does to like your body and your brain. Um, but it's also a very like heavy book too. And I know I went through not trauma, but I had like a lot of different things going on in my personal life throughout the month of March. So there were times where like I would pick it up and five minutes later put it down. Like I can't read this right because you know, it's just, it, it, it's too much sometimes. Um, but I think the reading the last like section of the book and the last readings like gave me a lot of hope because even though like the first parts of the book cover like what happened to you and like how trauma affects you, like the book ended on, in my mind, like a somewhat of a high note that these are things that you can do. I know we talked about meditation and we talked about this obviously like the different forms of therapy and like even though these things have happened to you you know in the past like there is like hope for like helping you deal with those traumas that you experience i think for me kind of with this book uh yeah it could be heavy but i think it pointed out a lot of the things that i probably need to take better care of as far as like my self-care kind of sucks like i work a lot all that kind of stuff. I put everybody else first. And like seeing the prolonged effects of what that could do, it kind of was like a wake up call. Like maybe I need to start prioritizing myself if I really want to be around to help other people. But like um, even working in the news, I think at some point we get desensitized because it's like yet another school shooting, another mass shooting another this and it's so much going on with like inflation and people losing jobs like amazon has laid off like twenty thousand people all these other companies are doing it too i think right now people are stressed out people don't know what to expect people are scared 
And it's like we are coming up on a political season where it's going to get very ugly. Tensions are going to be high. There's going to be all types of chaos. And it's just like, what do we do to really get through these situations? I mean, we can try to be there for the people we care about. But like, is that even enough? Because some people are probably still not going to feel like they matter. They exist at that point. Yeah, that's it's definitely heavy. Um I've been so this book has been like sitting on my desk like <laughs> as I'm trying to like of course pace myself through it because you can't just sit down one day and just be like I'm going to read this whole book it's not that kind of book as people have shared they had to read it for 5 minutes put it down it is it is not an easy one to get through when I so I I have a good reads account uh and I went in to update my progress on this one um and it always tells you to give a rating scale I gave three stars, which I, of course, my whole perspective on like books, um, I've had some like really awesome books like that. I'm like, oh, absolutely. Five stars. You know, this book, like I I would say Prince Harry's book probably is in the four and a half to five star range for books. This one I gave three mainly because it is a uh, it's not a book for everybody. Not not that it's not a book for everybody, but not everybody has the the education, the background, but also the, you know, it requires a, a, a strong attention span to really like digest this. And I'm a whole therapist uh, with a, you know, background in psychology and, you know, mental health and stuff. This book is going back on my shelf for at least a good six months to a year before I revisit it again. And we talk about like, we are what we consume. I was really happy to have learned a lot of new things from this, but I need to take a step away from it. The next several books of this mental health book club will probably just be memoirs because they're while they can be heavy at points, they're a little bit more digestible to most people. And I also like uh, focusing in on one person's particular story versus like thinking of like global, like systemic problems, which there's a time and a place for that too. But um, yeah, I agree with y'all that the book is very heavy, but I'm also glad that you got uh, kind of the insights and things from it. Uh, this seems to me to be the kind of book that I'll read, like I said, six months to a year from now. And I'll get all new and like, I'll get to see it from different perspectives that I didn't get to see it from this time. And I think that is also kind of meta if you think about it, because all of us have shared our own particular like traumas and things that we've been going through. Um, as we're going through life, you know, right now we're going through, like Nita just said, there's a lot of uh, upheaval and, you know, uncertainty and fear on the horizon or currently going on. And, you know, whatever the climate is or the environment around what it is that you're experiencing, something that's going to paint it. So I imagine I'll see this book, you know, at a later time in my life and it it will, it'll hit different. But also I wanted to share something uh, based on, I can't remember who just shared it, but I was actually talking with a a colleague of mine. She's working on her PhD, but she's a therapist, a, a black therapist. And I had, I can't remember what it was that sparked the conversation, but we were just talking and I could tell she's kind of in a very like kind of cynical, like hopeless kind of spot as far as like, what's all this like, not like in a suicidal sense, but like more so like, is there really hope? And I think I can speak to this, especially since it's just folks of color here in this this conversation, but she's talking about like the cumulative effect of just, you know, like 
she goes to a store and like people follow her thinking that she's going to steal something or, you know, she's approaching her like late twenties. So she's like, well, I want to like have children, but like I'm black. If I have a child and it's a male, like, will he get killed by police? Like going uh, somewhere nice and people, you know, ask, you know, almost like giving you 20 questions to see if you can actually afford to eat there or, you know, the whole like, uh, respectability politics and like, you know, do we belong and just the cumulative effect of like being a person of color, especially black and constantly being made to feel by this society that we live in that we are not wanted. I mean, and that is very relatable. So as we, you know, uh, I think Nita had talked about like self-care being lacking, right? So of course I'm not trying to, you know, I'm talking to this, this friend of mine, and I'm not trying to be a therapist or nothing. I'm just like listening and, you know, and I, I was just like, well, how is your self-care? Um, and her her response was very, you know, of course, she's in that you kind of survival mode right now, burnout. But she's like, self-care is a privilege and not everyone has the luxury, right? And so I can also acknowledge that, right? Like, you know, her and I are both therapists, right? Like, so seemingly we would have access to the same means and stuff like that. But when you feel that society as a whole or all the things that are going on, whether it be political, whether it be financial, economic, just human rights, you know, you know, you're hearing about kids going to school this morning and some of them aren't going to come home alive today. And all of that stuff, it really does beat you down. And so I think when I was having this conversation via text with this friend, and I'm like, yes, self-care does seem as a privilege, especially when, you know, we know, especially as, you know, people of color, sometimes we have to work twice as hard to get a fraction, you know, but I was reframing it and not trying to be like the, because I'm, if you know me, you know, I'm not a toxic positivity bitch. Like I'm a cynical as they come so but i was like self-care is not yes it's a privilege yes it sometimes requires you to budget and you know um to plan ahead and possibly to sacrifice something um but i said self-care is also an act of rebellion and it's also a tool to prevent especially if we're because this particular friend was talking about like the the toll that white supremacy and uh, society as a whole is taking on her personally. And I said, well, if you don't do your self-care, if you don't fight for that, you're literally going to succumb to the system of, say, white supremacy that is trying to beat you down. The same systems that don't want you to be in that restaurant because they think you can't afford it. The same, you know, uh, law enforcement systems that you know, we have to be afraid of if we're going to get stopped by traffic and stuff like that. If we're not taking care of ourselves, if we're not getting our rest, if we're not pouring back into ourselves, if we're not educating ourselves, if we're not going to therapy, if we're not, you know, dealing with our justified rage, like I'll shit you, like I shit you not, like I literally woke up Sunday morning in so much rage, like about a particular situation but I had to go, like, I see clients on Sundays. So I'm like, I got to do something about this. So I went and ran four miles on the Capitol Trail, right? And each time I am enraged, I tend to break my own record. So I shaved one second off of my record on Sunday morning. But earlier in the week, 
I had shaved two and a half minutes off of my record. And the day before that, I had shaved like 30 seconds off of my record. So in the past week alone, rage has fueled me being about three minutes faster on a four mile loop. So I may continue to be in rage, but I'm going to be fucking snatched. So there's that. Um, there, there's definitely, um, some perks to that, but, and it sounds pithy, but self-care is, I think for everybody, but I think especially for folks of color, it is an act of rebellion because you hear the little, oh, self-care isn't selfish, fucking duh. But I'm saying like, it is an act of rebellion and it is a tool to not succumb to what the systems of oppression are trying to do because if we don't do anything those systems are set to take us out like this country was built to not include us it was it was built to to make it harder for us that's why i said we have to work twice as hard to get a fraction right because the system wasn't built for us so it's it sounds simplistic but if we're not doing the individual self-care how the fuck are we supposed to deal with the the systems, the these uh, community global situations of trauma, if we as individuals aren't okay, right? Like if we're all burnt out, how are we going to like come together and fix anything? So we have to individually be taking care of ourselves so that when we do collectively get together, we are stronger and more clear headed and can do the things that we need to do and bring our our specialties to the forefront so unfortunately there's not like a clean cut like oh yeah follow these 10 steps and it will be solved but i thought that 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 story and the interaction that i had with my colleague friend was relevant here because literally the day that we're recording this this video or this this podcast another trauma has occurred in our community in our in our country and unfortunately oftentimes we're getting jaded by this so the trauma is actually just a denial or a it's like oh okay when's the next basketball game on you know we're kind of we're approaching it like that but in the meantime people are dying people's lives are being forever changed and i don't know it it's it it triggers our anxiety it triggers our hopelessness and stuff like that but also we can't let the hopelessness stop us from doing what we need to do to turn it around. Otherwise, it will just all self-destruct. Sounds very bleak and dark, but I'm interested in what y'all's takes are on that as we wrap up today. Maybe anything additional, hopeful or something. I, I do see a chat here. Um, someone in the group had said, rage fueled my workouts last week too. I tell you what, better better to take it out in the gym and uh, via running than to, you know, throw bows because sometimes it'd be like that. Sometimes I'm like, let's go. Give me a reason, you know? So what are y'all's, what are y'all's takeaways? What, what hope do y'all have? I think for me with like um, the school shootings, um, I was on either Instagram or TikTok today and it seemed like every post that like I saw in like my feed was about people getting sick and tired of this happening and just more and more fed up with when are we going to do something? Like I'm tired of hearing thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers won't bring our kids back. Um, and that I think gave me a lot of hope that like, a lot of people are really tired of this happening. A lot of people want something to be done. A lot of people are 
trying to make the necessary changes by um, holding like Washington and like Congress accountable. And people are just really, really tired. It's the same thing happening. Like parents are tired of worrying about their kids' safety and kids are tired of worrying about their safety and just seeing the different traumas that come from being a survivor of a school shooting. And um, even though I think we give Gen Z like a lot of slack for like some of their ways and, and things like that, I think that they're really going to be a generation that changes things. So I, that, that gives me a lot of hope. And I think this is something Janzel says pretty often, but sometimes you have to be the change you want to see. Like, so I think for a lot of us, that might mean stepping up to mentorship programs, helping young people that come after us, especially people of color, get into higher education, get into other things that they might not know was an option. But like, I think a lot of these kids are suffering as well, and they might not have an outlook or anything that will help them progress into healthy adults. So I think maybe 50, 60 years ago, community was a lot more important. And I know there's several reasons now why people don't trust their neighbors. I get it. But at the same time, you have to kind of find a way to be able to make a difference. So if that is spending more time with the kids that are in your family, even, it probably will go a long way, give the parents a break and give them different perspectives on things maybe they don't normally get to see. But I think it's going to take a lot of like personal reflection and figuring out small ways we can help ourselves and other people to feel better. That's a great sentiment. And um, like I've, I've talked vaguely, I think, on the podcast about mentorship and stuff. I, I have a person that I mentor. And to Nita's point there, any of the things that actually make change, they require and it's almost like the word sacrifice is overused. So I don't even like to say it. It's hard fucking work. Like anything that's going to make a difference is going to be hard. Like the particular mentoring, like relationship that I have right now truly sometimes drains me. Like I worry about the person that I mentor a lot more sometimes than I worry about my own child. Like it's, it's hard work. Right. And just like other system and like global issues, like I just uh, bought you know, uh, Greta Thunberg, the uh, Swedish, like, environmental girl, um, young woman, I don't know how old she is. Uh, but she just published a book called the the climate book. Um, and so she has all these essays by like leading experts and stuff like that. And it follows a similar format to this book. I'm not going to be reviewing it on the book club or nothing. But basically, at the beginning, it's like, here's all the problems. Here's all the things that are going wrong. And then on the back end of the book, it's like, here's what we can do about it. Right. And so kind of like to to take it on a, you know, a more general like framework for how we do something about this is like for things that matter, it's going to be hard if we're going to deal with trauma, if we're going to deal with these social issues and things that keep causing us trauma, we're going to have to make changes that are going to make people uncomfortable not going to go off on a tangent here about the people who have these assault rifles needing to be a little uncomfortable about them being turned in. Fuck y'all. How about that? The, the discomfort uh, is going to need to happen and we need to go through the discomfort so that everybody else can live. And it's, it's very, I don't know. People are very polarized. Um, we've gone through a lot 
since the pandemic, since before the freaking four years before the pandemic, everything is very polarized. And it feels like if we try to say something about something, there's 10 more things coming back at us about how we're wrong. You know, it's so in conclusion, like I said, about like whether it be mentoring, whether it be about climate change, whether it be about, you know, treatment and therapy and, you know, economics and resources and stuff like that. Everything is going to be hard. Life is hard. And we have to put ourselves in those uncomfortable situations so that we and also future generations can breathe a little bit easier. Because like I said earlier, we all want a good quality of life. Sometimes we have to get uncomfortable so that we can ensure that quality of life for other people um, and think a little bit beyond ourselves. So that's what I got here for today. I greatly appreciate y'all. And for those listening to the podcast, we are starting a new book uh, next month. The book is called Uphill by Jamel Hill. It is a memoir. So I'm really looking forward to getting into that. The original premise of this podcast, uh, the original long title, I've shortened it since because it's a mouthful, but it was Perfectly Imperfect, a podcast on mental health for folks of color. That was a long ass name, very ambitious at the beginning. We just shortened it to Perfectly Imperfect. But the goal in starting the podcast was to focus on mental health stories, um, situations and things uh, specifically impacting communities of color. And so uh, in doing this mental health book club, I you know, more so picked like, you know, bestsellers or books that were recommended to me, but we've gone through four months and I actually haven't chosen an author of color yet. John Zell here. Um, So I'm currently editing this episode and I completely forgot, um, as I just made that last statement, that we did have Michelle Obama's book a couple of months ago. So I have indeed chosen an author of color. But as I was editing it, it hit me and I was like, let me put a little correction in here. So the next two books are going to be memoirs of um, authors of color. So I definitely want to prioritize that and bring that in. So uh, very much looking forward to um, those conversations in the coming months. So uh, for those listening, thank you so much for listening and we'll um, see you back next week. Thank you for listening. Before you go, consider supporting this podcast in some of the following ways. You can buy me a coffee with the link in this episode's show notes. You can leave me a five-star review wherever you're listening to this episode. You can follow this show in your favorite app to be notified of new episodes. And finally, you can subscribe by email with the link in this episode's show notes. Thank you in advance for your support, and I'll see you next time.